Hi everyone, Anthony Fantano here, you know who it is, and this is a new episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, where we do a series of interviews with artists and creators of all types, and in this episode I have with me a music critic critic. He is a writer himself, and I guess uh, someone who is very astute when it comes to the art of writing, someone who's very observant, someone who's very picky, and he reviews the reviews of reviewers. His website's name is Ripfork. You can find it at ripfork.com, and not only does he do reviews of Pitchfork reviews, but reviews of writers uh, from across uh, the internet who are on, on pretty prominent websites, and uh, I'm going to be talking with him. His name is Mr. Matthew Wendis. We're going to be having a discussion about the current state of music writing, music journalism, and uh, I guess, uh, would would you characterize yourself as a bit of a <laughs> a grammar Nazi of sorts? Um, Not so much a grammar Nazi. I try to steer clear of that because I don't know everything there is to know about grammar. So sure. someone who does is likely to criticize me. And That's I true. try to minimize that if possible. I guess you're a, a grammar stickler. I, I'm trying to think of the less extreme version because yeah, obviously you're not, I go you're with not stickler. taking stickler. Okay. He's a, he's a bit of a grammar stickler <laughs> and maybe under sort of false uh, assumptions. I invited him onto this show thinking that I would, I would not feel his wrath because my videos are, are in video form. <laughs> uh, so I might just be sidestepping that entirely uh, because while Matthew does seem to have a very kind and polite demeanor about him, uh, so far, uh, because I talked with him a little bit before uh, I started recording this podcast, his reviews of other people's <laughs> reviews are absolutely scathing uh, a lot of the time. So I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to see that wrath in the midst of this conversation. We'll see. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well, Anthony. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for coming on. No problem. All right. Uh, so what exactly, let, let's, let's just get a bit of background here. You, you've been running this website for, uh, or sort of running Rip Fork. Rip Fork has been a thing since about the same year I started the needle drop. Um, you know, and, and obviously I know my reasons for starting what I was doing, but, but what was kind of, you know, making you tick when you decided to, uh, undergo building this website and, and doing what you do? Well, it was an interesting time in my mid twenties and, I was thinking to myself, okay, I, I'm tired of writing for other people. I kind of want to start my own blog. But the problem was that there were, I don't know, a million music blogs out there already. So I'm thinking to myself, what can I do that's really original? And I thought to myself, okay, what if I make a website or a blog that's dedicated entirely to uh, critiquing music critics? And I, I mean, people have been doing that already, but I was thinking about the way to do it in terms of a tone mm -hmm. instead of just being like, oh man, your opinion of such and such an album is crap. It's actually a good album. I was thinking to myself, well, what if I take on the persona of kind of a militant middle school, high school English teacher and just savage the art of the critic, which is writing. And that's uh, kind of how it took root. Yeah, because your your reviews don't so much seem like an ideological battle of which music is bad and which music is good. More, you are uh, just kind of attacking the quality of the writing that you're seeing. 
Exactly, because if I I found that if you do that, then the writer, the critic, can just fall back on, oh well, it's just my opinion. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, and your opinion is no better than mine. Blah 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 blah. So yeah, that it's kind of a circular argument. And I felt that was going nowhere. Sure, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that that opinion or that point of view can kind of uh, snuff that argument out. Um, pretty quickly, but the approach that you're taking with the website and have been taking with the website, uh, do, do you find that you elicit a stronger response from uh, music fans, fellow music writers, when you kind of discuss music critique in this way? I think so, yeah, because the way I write it, I write it directly to the critic, almost like I'm addressing them just on a phone call or a letter by their first name. I, I've always hated using last names, especially in music reviews where it's just so impersonal. It's like they're writing about politics, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. So sure. just taking on like a more personal tone, I think, both puts them on their heels because it's someone who's actually directly challenging them. But it also appeals to people who are looking for more of a human face in the writing. Sure. Um but uh, uh, but have you found, or has it kind of been your experience in the past that um, are you eliciting you know serious and and maybe even offended or or angry <laughs> responses from some of these writers after you put out the reviews that you do? You'd be surprised. It actually runs the gamut. Some people are actually they take it in stride. They think it's funny, and they some people actually thank me for like taking them to task, and they just honestly hadn't thought of things that way, but. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people who have taken great personal offense, and that isn't without justification. Definitely early on, I was much more scathing, much more of a dick <laughs> in many respects. <laughs> You've eased up. You've softened. <laughs> yes. Because I figure that, I mean, being a dick is easy, especially today, but if you just ease off of that and you just focus on the arguments and being respectful, even offering um, feedback and things that they could change and possibly improve, at least in my mind, but doing it in a more respectful, congenial manner, at least compared to my old days, then I think that gets a better response. But there are plenty of people out there who just, <laughs> it's funny to me, aren't open to criticism being critics themselves. I mean, I've been blocked, trigger blocked on Twitter, I don't know how many times, <laughs> by mostly Pitchfork writers, but... It's it's just funny to me that there's that level of closed-mindedness in the community. Um, the the time that you were starting this website, you know, you're talking about how it was an interesting time for, for you personally, uh, and you can go into that as to why that was, uh, if you like, but it was also an interesting time just kind of for the internet and for music because there was a huge boom of music blogs from... Uh, all across the world that we're talking about indie bands of all sorts of different sounds and flavors, but that sort of seems to is uh, that that seems to have died out a bit uh, with the come up of all of these music streaming services. It seems that now that uh, there are more music streaming services and more people uh, are kind of gravitating toward those services to hear new music. The blogs, a lot of these smaller indie blogs have kind of lost purpose in a sense. Um, and, and as a result, you've got kind of a, a lot of dead blogs and a lot of just 
uh, blogs that just aren't functioning, just aren't updated anymore. And it kind of seems like uh, things have fallen back upon the major players who were there before all of this. I mean, certainly some websites have kind of risen to the top and have, have thrived throughout this uh, this era, you know, like Consequence of Sound and the 405, Tiny Mixtapes as well, who I think is, is actually pretty old. Um, I also want to say uh, Stereo Gum as well. Um, do, do you sort of take a issue with the writing on a lot of those websites as well? Um, you know, just kind of the general news uh, blurbs that they're putting up and that sort of thing? I mean, not necessarily. I mean, it's it's funny because part of the biggest thing that I rail against when I'm writing is against this kind of robotic, uh, I don't know, like fake erudite tone that people take and just kind of like commodify music. Whereas a lot of the smaller guys I've found have injected a more personal tone into the writing and mm. it just gives the impression that they love what they do, they love what they listen to, and they don't love what they don't, and that's fine. But, I mean, a lot of people, I guess, are doing it as a hobby and there's not a ton of money in it anymore if there ever was. So, plus we see with the like acquisition of Pitchfork by Condé Nast, Lately, a lot of these bigger ones are coming back, but they're also being subsumed in these much bigger companies. So it's it's definitely changed since when I first started out in 2009, but there's still plenty of variation out there for people who are willing to look. Yeah, uh, and, and this current, uh, or this recent, rather, um, uh, buyout that Condé Nast had with Pitchfork, this acquisition, uh, as, as far as you've been observing, and I know that you've been, uh, reviewing, uh, you just reviewed that, uh, uh, Vanessa Carlton record that they, uh, reviewed, um, or at least you reviewed the review of it. <laughs> um, uh, sort of watching them as closely as I'm assuming you do, uh, have you sort of noticed any kind of shift in the writing style or the quality as far as what Pitchfork has been putting out uh, after uh, this acquisition and sort of leading up to the point of this acquisition? Because I'm sure it's not the first time they've they've been in contact and sort of, um, you know, had, had kind of uh, uh, put the idea out there that, you know, this acquisition could take place. I mean, I think now it's too early to say, and I've I've seen some things, like I've seen the word I and me pop up in Pitchfork reviews lately, mm. which I don't know if that has anything to do with it or if it's just like a freak occurrence. But I think generally over the past few years, Pitchfork has been trying to remold its image away from this kind of clique of snooty, mostly men, and inject a much more diverse palette of writers onto the roster regardless of whether or not they write any differently is i mean that's up up in the air for debate but eh, it's to me pitchfork has slowly been evolving into just something that's very business driven i mean you can see it in their reviews just the amount of hyperlinking within the website it's almost like they don't care what their writers are writing so long as there's enough crap in there to just click further into the site. So it's honestly, it's hard to tell. I think when it really changes is the day that I (laughs) find that I have not much to write about. So I'll let you know when that happens. And when you say changes, do you mean changes for the better or changes in, in, into such a way, uh, 
uh, it becomes like really banal and just completely boring <laughs> and, and there's really nothing of substance being said. Well, it's interesting to me because I've seen a lot of talk on Twitter. Where people are like, oh my God, it's going to become Rolling Stone. And like, I mean, well, I, honestly, I think a little bit of Rolling Stone and Pitchfork wouldn't be the end of the world, but it's really a question of what you like. And there are definitely people out there who like what Pitchfork produces. I'm not one of them, but um, I guess time will tell. It's really... I'm not sure what the higher ups are going to try to create in order to garner <laughs> the higher market share of these. I believe they t- termed it uh, millennial males. So we'll hmm. uh, we'll see. Well, it it also kind of sounds like even though you are uh, critiquing the reviews on the website, and I and I would like to get a little bit back into that later. Uh, you 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 have opinions about the way the re- the website runs outside of just kind of simply the uh, the writing end of things. You're talking about sort of the the business end of things and how it looks like the the website is running from the outside and just kind of these uh, recent pushes toward diversity that they've been making. Uh, you know, do do you think that this diversity that you're seeing in the writing staff as well as uh, writing reviews that that are using I and using me might be a little more personal in tone. Uh, do you think this is for the better, or do you think it's just kind of a bit of lip service or window dressing? Well, I don't think it's just window dressing. I do think it's good to have a diversity of voice and tone, but, I mean, that still remains to be seen. I mean, a lot of writers, new writers that I've started reading on Pitchfork Honestly, I could just pull out of a hat of anybody I've read over the past few years, but there are some new voices on it that that's another thing. The way I write, I don't force the issue. So if I find that someone's review is, I I find it non-objectionable or fine, then I don't try to pry into it. I mean, people might think otherwise, but I'm not some vindictive cretin who just enjoys like savaging certain pitchfork writers just for the hell of it. I mean... (laughs) I have my idea of what I like and what I don't like, but I don't consider myself a terrible person in that respect. You have a soul. I have a soul, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Um, all right. So, I mean, as, as, as far as what you're seeing in these reviews and what you're ripping apart in these reviews, and this isn't just, you know, um, uh, specific to Pitchfork, you know, you, just music reviews in general. Um what is it, I guess, would be one of the biggest and most major pet peeves to you? <laughs> uh, you know, the first thing that kind of ticks you off to, uh-oh, this is going to be horribly written. Uh, well, I just in general, I think it's people writing without a reader in mind. I, I think this happens when people listen to music and they just think to themselves like, oh, I have this great idea in my head of what this sounds like and I'm just going to scribble it down and I'm not going to actually read it and think to myself oh does this read well does this flow well if it answers the question does it sum up the collection of sounds I just listened to then it's ready to go and from there flows any number of ridiculous things you can find in a lot of music reviews Hmm. Um, I think one of my biggest pet peeves as people know who read rip fork would be the excessive hyphenation which just gets to the extent where it looks like you're reading 19th century telegraph dispatches 
where it's I feel like I should just be like snapping my fingers when I'm reading this or like counting out beats. It just and the sentences are run on sentences with parentheses and quotes where they don't need to go. And it's just I just if you read your stuff, this shouldn't happen. I just it boggles my mind sometimes how this stuff can even pass through. And I understand a lot of these sites don't have um, editors or proofreaders on staff. It's just the people send in their work and it's posted on the site. But there should be some quality control starting with the freelancers themselves. Hmm. I I think, um, I don't know, writing like that, it can be kind of messy, but it can also be sort of, I don't know, animalistic and just sort of... uh, (laughs) Uh, I, I guess there can be a kind of indie appeal to it as well. You know, we're, we're breaking the rules of punctuation <laughs> just as, just as we sort of endorse these artists who are kind of breaking the rules of uh, popular music, I guess. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I also, <laughs> to that, I would say it's also kind of leaning in the direction of perversion of language where hmm. it's to me in a lot of cases it's just a sign of laziness where it's a lot easier to come up with a chain of five words to describe something than it is to really like delve into your mind into with a source into a dictionary and find that one word that just encapsulates what you just heard and i think that can be a much more rewarding experience um sure absolutely uh listening to you speak so far in the podcast. Uh, you're, you're very articulate. You're very well-spoken. You speak very evenly. Uh, it doesn't sound like you're trying to fill up a lot of dead space like I do when I'm talking <laughs> and that you don't have a million different sentences flowing through your head at once, even though you know that there's one that you want to say. Uh, so as, as, as a result of that, I, I, I have to ask, uh, would you consider yourself kind of a language purist in a sense? Do you avoid things like slang or when you hear things like that? You, do, do you normally have a negative reaction, uh, whether it comes up in just regular speaking or in writing? Well, interestingly enough, my work for the past greater part of a decade has been in transcription, closed captioning, um, editing transcripts. So really, I spend the bulk of my time listening to people talk. Hmm. And so you learn how to construct sentences on the fly, how to punctuate them on the fly, Good speakers, speakers who speak in run-on sentences, speakers who are concise and snappy, easy to type. And I think that's just being able to think in terms of sentence structure is kind of a blessing and a curse in that respect. But that's um, that's kind of how I tick. Okay. Uh, is w- Would you say that this, I guess... Uh work that you're doing uh it's probably the biggest influence on on sort of how you perceive language and how you know you're speaking just like you're speaking to me right now uh you know or has uh has language kind of been a bit of a lifelong passion for you well i i'd like to think i've been speaking from a very young age but um (laughs) (laughs) that's true i've always i've always had a distaste for jargon just for the sake of jargon I mean, Mm. to me, if you have something to say, you can certainly be poetic and beautiful in saying it, but it says to me, if you just cram it full of unnecessary words that either A, you don't really have something to say, B, 
you don't believe in what you say, or C, you're not trying hard enough to find an effective way of saying it. Well, isn't that, or couldn't that be a critique of a lot of the music reviews that you're reading that maybe they're so soaked in slang or kind of uh, terminology that's so specific to the niche genre of music that the album is dealing in that people who don't already go into that review familiar with the artist, familiar with the type of music that the artist is playing, the review can be a little alienating because I, I know that's, that's something that's, I'm I'm diff, uh, excuse me I'm guilty of occasionally because sometimes I'm reviewing uh, let's say a death metal record or a post rock record and I want to do the review but don't necessarily have the time to kind of give people a crash course on that stuff so there are probably some descriptive go to terms for the type of musical characteristics that I'll catch in the genre and I'll bring it up. And uh, uh, it's it's just kind of easy, though. I guess in a sense it does sort of make me lazy because uh, I, I remember there was one point maybe in 2012 or 2013, probably more 2013, where uh, me saying, because I was just reviewing so many new hip-hop albums, and at that point, you know, Trap had just really taken the world by storm. And it just became a thing where just pretty much in every review for a little while, I was saying Trap-influenced beats, Trap-influenced beats, <laughs> Trap-influenced beats, Trap-influenced beats. Trap influenced beats. Yeah. And it kind of became a mini-meme in and of itself. And people were like, hey man, take a drink every single time Anthony Fantano says <laughs> Trap-influenced beats. And it still kind of chases me now, even though, you know, I do avoid the term more consciously uh, than I used to, but uh, uh, but still, I, I can't help but feel like at least a little bit of of, of jargon uh, helps and sort of um, uh, can be necessary sometimes. No, oh, I I I I don't have a problem with people being passionate about what they do, and I I hear what you're saying about a lot of the stuff is like seven levels deep, and in order to properly explain something to an audience, then you need to delve into it. But I think by the same token, you should also not fall into the trap of thinking that my audience should only be people who already know the solid foundation of this. And I'm speaking to my peers because I think that can be really alienating. And I think what turns off a lot of people from well, pitchfork, especially is just that kind of artificial bar for entry where they're the tone that's taken is, uh, this is our exclusive clubhouse. If you know what the hell I'm talking about, then you're welcome to come in and <laughs> enjoy what I enjoy or not enjoy what I don't enjoy. But the rest of you, if you think this is over your head, then you can just scurry along to listen to some Nickelback. Sure. And and talking about uh, sort of the audience that, that you have in mind for when you're writing something and, and – this is something that you brought up earlier, and and that's something I sort of take issue with as well when you were getting on your initial point about that. It seems like there are a lot of music reviewers out there who are writing, but seem as if only if they're kind of writing for themselves, they're not really considering their writing as kind of a communication tool. They're not really thinking of uh, a group of people reading what they've written, uh, I guess, in a very sort of intimate way. I mean, when I'm doing my reviews, I try to write and try to voice them in such a way that I would if I were speaking to uh, maybe a small group of like 100 people or something. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't seem like that same sort of wish to communicate comes through in a lot of reviews that I read on uh, more popular websites. They read more like, I don't know, the something that 
somebody might just kind of keep in their own head without worrying <laughs> about whether or not it translates to how other people might interpret it. And on top of that, uh, maybe even reads a little bit like a, uh, a report you might hand into a teacher, which I, I think um, isn't entirely the fault of the writer. I think that's kind of a, a way that we're sort of stuck into writing or, or I guess a mindset that we're kind of frozen in a lot of, you know, Western um, writers, uh, you know, younger people uh, are frozen in because that's kind of the way we've been raised to write in the school system. I know what you mean. Um, and I think, uh, well, people who start out with music writing, a majority of them come out of college having written like one or two, three essays a week where they have to write this way. Otherwise they get penalized for it. Taking a congenial um, down to earth tone will get you points docked unless you have a very understanding professor. But by the same token, this is music and it's something that apparently you're supposed to enjoy and love and have define your life. And just making it sound like a chore and writing for the internet just seems silly to me that mm. like why would people choose to do this unless their their editors and their higher ups are forcing them to do it and that would raise the question why is that being done why why does this style of writing sell why is this the norm especially now when you're going up against the robots essentially with Spotify and Pandora when people don't need to read the reams of jargon. They can just plug in a band they like and they'll get different bands bit right back out at them that they statistically will enjoy according to an algorithm. Hmm. But I think um, well, while that is true, I also think, uh, you know, that there definitely needs to kind of be a place where people can talk about some of these up and coming bands uh, that aren't necessarily picked up by these algorithms just yet. And also, in addition to that, I mean, uh, I don't know, do you, do you kind of have faith in the uh, evolution of algorithms to <laughs> to such a point where, you know, it'll be almost as if you're being a uh, uh, recommended music uh, with a human touch, I guess, because I mean, I, I know me personally, um, a lot of these recommendation engines on a lot of these different music streaming platforms, I've been utterly disappointed with all of them. <laughs> uh, however, I know not, you know, I, I know I'm not the average music listener, you know, I mean, the only thing that's really come close to impressing me are some of the pretty eclectic uh, playlists that have turned up on Apple music, but you know, really that's about it. Well, I certainly hope we don't reach the point where the machines can essentially do the complete job of humans because that kind of brings us to the point like okay do we need, even need writers anymore and if that's the case then i'm out of a job and thousands of other desperate people are out of a job too but sure. i think that people should at the very least bear in mind that i think companies are pushing towards that to try and i mean they're not idiots they're trying to get as many clicks as they can and if people have a voice and have a love for music and want to convey that to the world, then I think they also need to be open to the idea that there are better and stronger and brain fart. Yes. Better, stronger ways of accomplishing that. Hmm. 
if we were to get to that point where the algorithms were that fantastic, you know, and, and they were that great, uh, I can't help but feel like even if people were getting music that they felt like they really, really liked out of those algorithms, that there would still be something missing if they were to simply rely on that to introduce them to new music and kind of experience the music world because the music world is so cultural and it's just so much about, you know, what our friends and what our family are enjoying and what they have enjoyed. It's, it's just, you know, music is such a personal thing. I don't think that the experience can just simply kind of be boiled down to, Oh, I heard of all of these songs through, uh, my web browser and I love them all and they defined my teenage years, you know? Um, uh, I mean, maybe it's not as romantic as listening to music on the radio or the way that we romanticize radio in the past. I mean, radio for a while now has been total crap and I, I feel bad for anybody whose teen years are being defined by the radio right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, New England radio, man. It's, uh, it's kind of abysmal now that I've returned home. Oh, are you from New England as well? Originally from Connecticut, just like you. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Uh, wh- wh- when you were here uh, last, um, was WCCC still a metal station? Um, is that... Wait, is that New Haven? What's WCCC? Uh, WCCC was the metal station 106.9 out of Hartford. Oh, and, Hartford. Oh, I yeah. was I was a WAAF guy, at least in my younger, angrier years. But um, I don't think I've even tried listening to them anymore. Uh, it was it was mostly like new metal and stuff like that. Ah, but uh, uh, and Howard works. Stern, yeah, and Howard Stern actually got his start over there, uh, way back in the day. Mm. Uh, but recently, uh, as recently as a few years ago, they've been bought out by a Christian uh, station that mm. just kind of syndicates the same programming across every other station that they own. Interesting. So it's a lot of lovely Christian rock blasting throughout the day. Ah, um, but it's but it's music. It's not. Uh... Not the word being being preached. There's, through a voice. there's probably some points of the day where you can hear the word. Ah, all right, <laughs> probably, well, probably some I points should, during the day. Tune in, expand my horizons. Um, have you uh, uh, ever listened to WPKN? WPKN? Um, probably not. I didn't there- really listen to a whole ton of radio growing up. So you probably know much more than me. I mean, I I do have a background in radio, so that would help. Um, that would help. That would help. But yeah, WPKN is is still a pretty great community station. Where I remember pretty pretty consistently throughout high school, a friend of mine and I would tape episodes of a particular show, and and the show uh, would air once a month, and that was how. That was how busy they were, I guess, just how flooded they were with uh, uh, people requesting shows. People would just pretty much just have a show once a month. And uh, he would be playing from maybe midnight or 11 o'clock to like 3 a.m. or something. He'd be playing nothing but just the the vilest, nastiest, (laughs) hardcore punk and stuff like that. Like it was the first time we'd ever heard of anybody like Gigi Allen. Yes. Uh, You know, he was playing his stuff on the radio. and Stuff to uh, rot your innards with and terrify your parents. Exactly. So he was just playing nothing but that stuff, and we would just like tape the shows and learn about all the terrible artists he was playing all the time. It was a uh, it was fantastic time. And Anthony Fantano was born. And Anthony Fantano was born. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, punk punk music really ruined my life. Honestly, I mean, if if I had never heard of it, I probably just would have continued on uh, into a life of accountancy. Ah, 
that would be uh that would be an interesting parallel reality going there. <laughs> a very boring parallel, but you know, whatever. Not not dissing any accountants. I have I have relatives who are, so it just kind of seemed like it made sense. Yeah, the punk and, CPAs out there are offended. Oh my god, there was uh, uh and and now we're just kind of digressing into personal stories here. Yeah. But I remember I uh at one time in high school I had gone to this career day thing and uh, uh, one of the career, uh, I want to say, mentors who I had chosen that I wanted to sort of see speak because you had a whole array of people who you could choose from uh, was a CPA. And uh, it was it was actually very sad. Um, yeah, I, I I went into it, uh, you know, with with high hopes, and I was very positive about the whole thing, and I was kind of excited to, you know, legitimately excited to kind of hear people uh, who are in the workforce kind of talk about their work because um, even as a kid, I was very excited to kind of you know grow up and become an adult and you know just be uh, making money and just kind of building a life or whatever, and. Um, uh, he went up there, he was talking about his job and I don't know what it was. He just made his job sound so painfully boring <laughs> and he the, just depressed the, the hell out of you. And, and, and the whole class, you know, it wasn't even just him, like the whole class, like revolted against him in a sense. <laughs> and they started questioning his, his life choices. Oh, jeez. And you like, put him they, on the bottle. I, I, I wasn't even saying anything. It was everybody else. It was crazy. They just like, you know, were it's, it's like they just smelled blood. Mm-hmm. Like they could, they could smell like a little bit of insecurity in what he was saying. And then they started like, you know, picking at him with little questions. And then all of a sudden they had him kind of in a corner and he <laughs> said, he said, well, would you rather do something that you like or something that makes money? And everybody was like, I'd rather do something I like. And then he was both. Both is the correct answer to that. <laughs> oh my god! And 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 I think um, the the point at which I think he really lost everybody was um, a point at which uh, and and this could I think have been sold with a cool angle and and I don't think it's like you know a terribly uncool thing, um, uh, but he told this story about how in his work he's actually at a point or was at a point where he worked pretty closely with the uh, the FBI pursuing some people who had committed white collar crime ah. and uh, you know they would hand him the books and you know be like uh, so you know do do you see any evidence of uh, any wrongdoing here and I guess in one particular instance uh, they allowed him to come with them on a bust of one of these guys okay so in the midst of uh getting ready for the bus they handed him a gun but it was unloaded (laughs) so that he could kind of have a prop gun (laughs) when everyone went in there to fucking bust the place up did he know it wasn't loaded or he's just thinking oh yeah he he knew he knew it wasn't loaded he was told it was not loaded (laughs) you know he should not be (laughs) if he's not trained he shouldn't just have a loaded gun and and now sort of in the now sort of in the age of, I don't know, uh, the police militarization and all that, it seems kind of disturbing. Yeah, they didn't hand but, him a tank. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but at the time, everyone in class thought it was hilarious that his gun was not loaded, <laughs> and just like thought it was so dorky and emasculating that they would hand him this unloaded gun to charge into this room with like I don't know maybe four or five other guys or ten other guys. I don't know how many people bust into a room to bust a uh, somebody who's like I don't know embezzling money, whatever the guy was doing. Um, and uh, yeah, th- that was just one of many points where everybody had decided, wow, man. I don't I don't want to do this at all. This guy's like super disappointing. So he was an unmotivational speaker. He was very very much an unmotivational speaker. That's true. That's very true. Um so yeah, having said all that, uh I also had a a class with somebody who uh worked in radio and uh and and he was actually very inspiring and that's sort of where I sort of set my sights. I was like, yeah, broadcast stuff. That sounds more fun than being handed an empty gun. <laughs> and going into a, a house of a convicted felon. Yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, we've just fallen so off course. Yeah, I forgot who I was. Huh? What, what's going on here? All right, but moving on from that, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, Moving forward, do you think uh, music writing is going to continue um, to to uh, I don't know even be a thing or sort of hold any water, and and not even in the wake of um, uh, uh, these music streaming websites, but in the wake of uh, what stuff uh, stuff like what I'm doing, you know, and, and other people out there on YouTube as well who are doing these video reviews, because uh, if if the goal is to kind of be personal, connect with the reader and sort of recommend them something in such a way where it feels like it's coming from one person to another, not some algorithm, not just a block of text. Uh, it seems at least to me, hopping on camera is, is the most personal way to go about it. I think so too. And I'm not, I'm not discounting music writing. I'm not holding a a torch and, and a pitchfork and saying, uh, death to music writing and this this should just be destroyed I'm, i might have thought something along those lines very early on but i i love it when people write about what they love and i just think that it doesn't come through for a lot of people for any number of reasons and i i think that what you do with uh the video blogging about music is a great step in the right direction because you can't really fake your personality when there's a camera in your face so and i mean what you were saying earlier you were hoping i'm not gonna critique you well i was thinking about that earlier and it would be pretty (laughs) it would be impossible for me to do it because essentially i would be critiquing your your performance i I would be like oh you you uh you push your glasses up your nose too much or this and that. Hey, that, just, that is a valid critique, though. I was thinking that actually that I would bring that up. Might need to uh, tighten the screws on those a little bit. They're uh, they're sliding down just a tad. I probably do. Yeah, it's true. But I mean, it's again that's nitpicking outside of my wheelhouse, which I feel is writing. And again, I don't want to toot my horn saying I'm the best writer. I'm the best editor. I know this. I know everything. But I do know what sounds better than other things what reads better than other things and i'm really not gonna discount that i definitely have a voice and i have an opinion and i think it's valid yeah no i mean it's i guess um 
I guess I've just been uh, disappointed with um, the a lot of the current crop of of not only music writers but just kind of journalists in general. Um, and and it's it's really I think no fault of any one person or any one editor or anything like that. Uh, I mean I think the trend that's sort of slowly killing a lot of this stuff. Uh, is more economic than anything. You know, I I think, unfortunately, just a lot of these news websites, as the internet has sort of swallowed up a lot of print media and so on and so forth, um, a lot of the journalism has sort of gone down the toilet. I mean, I was just watching something yesterday on... um, you know, all of this native advertising that that people are uh, uh, trying to work into news websites now where it's just something that's essentially uh, an advertisement, but it looks like news. And and I've had dozens of people email me over the years uh, uh, asking me if I can uh, have them advertise on my site. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to say to them, OK, sure. You know, what's what's the advertisement? And they're like, oh, well, it's an article. It's already written out. Or, you know, we, you could write the article and, you know, here's all the things you need to say in it. And then once you put it up on the website, you will get X amount of dollars. And thankfully, I'm in a position with YouTube where I can just be like, no, like, this is fucking crazy. Yep. Uh, are other people doing this? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's actually kind of uh, scary just how stealthily people are trying to sneak advertisements into our information now. I know what you mean, and now that you bring it up, I I hate the trend towards clickbaity articles and that kind of just headline journalism. Hmm. And yeah, because it seems like you're either getting one or the other. You're getting the native you're getting the native advertising thing, or you're getting that clickbait stuff, or exactly. you're getting stuff that it seems like the the author is writing it. And this might be one of the only few times where it seems the author does have an audience in mind, pissed off people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the author is just writing something because they know it's going to make somebody mad. Mm-hmm. And I I mean, I know where people are coming from. I, I know where freelancers are nowadays. Just the dearth of work, the dearth of good paying work. I mean, good paying projects are few and far between and just the trend towards clickbait is reflective of economics, but it's also people just under pressure just to get a voice, get an audience and get a revenue trying to do what they love to do and get paid for it. It's just getting harder and harder. And it's really sad that really the trend that I've been seeing is just towards a lot more divisive articles just for the point of being divisive and just getting people to slug it out, and it's it's sad. And of course, I'm a hypocrite in that respect too. I mean, like I'm divisive in what I write, but eh, I don't know. But I guess it's kind of divisive in such a way where, at the end of the day, you could sort of have a bit of a a giggle with it, or mm-hmm. think that it's sort of interesting that somebody would um, uh, uh, sort of take a particular aspect of music writing so seriously or dive so hard into something Mm -hmm. so much uh, that they would, you know, write something so scathing. You're not really (laughs) 
you're you're not really drawing a line in the sand no. where there are thousands <laughs> of people on one side and thousands of people on the other side. I mean, the interesting and the funny thing about what you're doing is you're drawing a line in the sand, and the only person on the other side is you. Yes, you know, well, um, and whoever wants to be on my side of the sand, we we have nice things on my side. <laughs> <laughs> but but some of these other articles, I mean, you well know that they're drawing lines in the sand between large groups of people, exactly, and you know they're, they're trying to create um, these. Uh, uh, these ideological battles. I mean, I think um, uh, maybe one of the most notable ones off of uh, Pitchfork, uh, maybe uh, earlier this year, I believe, is when it happened. Uh, was uh, was that article about uh, how painfully white indie was? <laughs> oh yes, I I wrote about that one. Yes, I remember that quite vividly. Which was absolutely hilarious for a number of reasons. I mean, one, I mean, it's it's not by design. You know, nobody nobody's forcing or trying to make indie white. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, in, indie first and foremost is is about the indie musicians. Yep. You know, and and it's about the type of music that they're playing. And I mean, just historically, it's been white people who have been wanting to play it. Um, you know, and 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 I mean, who who could blame people of other cultures in especially in America? Uh, for not being that interested in it because it's such a niche thing, yep. number one. And number two, it's been so underground for so long. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, uh, uh, a lot of these people in the indie scene uh, partially come from places of privilege and they can kind of afford to play this type of music that makes absolutely no money, <laughs> you know, or very little money. Yep. Um, you know, whereas you might have people from other backgrounds who who probably want to play pop music or want to play music that is probably going to register with a larger audience. You know, they're not, they don't want to play this sort of experimental obscure sort of trying hard to impress people intellectually type of music and 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 that's not to say that there haven't been people of color who have been very successful in indie there most certainly have and people outside the genre uh who play other styles of music who for whatever reason maybe they're a little left field um they've been kind of rejected by people who would typically listen to that kind of music but the indie scene has embraced them um so uh uh, you know, I, I feel like, um, uh, it, it just kind of seemed as, as you were saying earlier, divisive and just trying to, you know, create a battle where there isn't one. I mean, obviously the indie scene isn't perfect, you know, just like any culture isn't perfect. I mean, you know, it has its issues that need to be ironed out. Um, you know, we, we talk, especially in articles like this about, um, things like privilege, but consistently we do not talk about things like class privilege, because if we were, uh, <laughs> people who have certain economic backgrounds would have to raise their hands and be like, yeah, uh, actually, uh, I'm very rich, you know, <laughs> or I don't need to worry about, you know, where I'm getting my next paycheck. Well, I think that was the problem I had with that article too, is that it didn't really delve into <laughs> much of anything other than white equals bad, which I thought was kind of a dumb argument to begin with. But the examples that were used in it, I mean, like Bono, uh, Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, Kanye West. I mean, none of these people are indie. And it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, what is indie these days? Is it the Bell and Sebastian of yesteryear? or I mean, what is it today? But I just thought it was a very crude, poorly worded and poorly written, poorly argued article that was appearing on a website for for all intents and purposes, from what I could see, was just to garner clicks and outrage on Twitter, which it certainly got, but at what a cost. Yeah. I mean, and, and also I think the 
the article kind of, in a way, uh, expressed a, a bit of completely uh, uh, ignorant American privilege, because I think to sort of single out a band like Bell and Sebastian is to completely ignore and erase the existence of Scottish culture and a lot of the uh, underground rock culture of the UK, which was uh, a very... Uh, I, I think something that was very specific to the culture of the UK, uh, whereas when you're from America, you can kind of take it for granted that you live in a place where culture is kind of this amorphous thing. And, you know, it doesn't really matter uh, what race you are in a lot of respects as far as enjoying particular things or finding certain kinds of music entertaining. I mean, it's a little bit of a, a melting pot. I mean, sure, you have your pockets everywhere where certain cultures kind of congregate. But as far as mainstream culture, there's just like so so many influences coming together in all directions. And, uh, you know, you have people in America who are essentially white, but, you know, they have these different specific European backgrounds, but nobody really kind of draws on that. Once you're in America, you know, everybody who's Caucasian is just white, you know, like nobody's really uh, uh, identifying simply as, uh, uh, I guess, their European heritage if you do happen to be white. So again, it's a bit of a melting pot and you can kind of take for granted that uh, a white person here is just like a white person in Scotland and that's mm -hmm. not the case. Yeah. Well, that was another reason I was so disappointed because the article was actually written by someone who I believe lives in England and she was of Pashto descent, but it was just written in a way that like you could have read this on any other clickbait article about like cultural appropriation and just kind of the very rough hewn arguments that kind of hit with a big hammer, but don't really probe any deeper than that. And Everybody ends up getting annoyed and irritated and defensive or supportive of it, but for reasons that I think are just not very nuanced. And when you think about it, music, like you were saying, is just such a great melting pot and it's so varied. And do we really want to be policing people for just liking what they like and injecting what they like into their music? And the motivation and the execution can certainly be called into question, but I don't think we should really throw blanket statements about the like the unbearable whiteness of indie or something like that. It just to me it just begs the question of why Pitchfork even ran that article to begin with. Yeah, I mean it's it's just kind of sad to see not only them but also um, uh, uh, a lot of other websites out there taking this kind of. Uh, I guess, editorial style with their opinion pieces that, you know, originally you could find on websites like BuzzFeed. And the reason these pieces would go up, you know, with uh, uh, not even just writing, you know, also, um, you know, some of their weird lists where they would just throw pictures up uh, pieces on their website where it's like, Ooh, these 25 women need feminism. And then the next article is bam, these 25 women don't need feminism. And cats, it's just and a, cats. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> these 25 cats wearing, wearing overalls don't need feminism, you know, like that kind of shit. And, and, mean. and the thing is it's, 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 it's an article style that was created just to drive traffic and just to get people pissed off, you know, not to educate people, inform people, enlighten anybody. And it's this, this cheap kind of political discourse that sort of seems like it's it's ruling the day, unfortunately, uh, and it's and and it's only happening on these websites. And the people 
who run these websites know it's only happening because it gets them clicks. But unfortunately, you know, people who are sort of um, younger and they want to sort of learn how the world works and they want to figure the world out and they, and they want to know where they can kind of, you know, have political discussion with uh, their peers and sort of, you know, get a glimpse of, of, of how to fix the world because pe- young people are, they're very idealist, you know, and they, and they want to make the world a better place. But unfortunately, uh, uh, the first places they're turning to or running into to sort of get a hint toward how to do that um, are places where they're putting up articles like this, which are simply uh, not very informative at all and are just kind of emotionally manipulative. Um, it's, it's sort of interesting that, that, nowadays we're so focused on things like let's say for instance um cultural appropriation when uh, you know we'll point at somebody like iggy azalea for instance and say you know obviously that's an instance of cultural appropriation and i don't debate that uh but what i think is interesting is that you know even the stuff to you that is not passing for cultural appropriation now as far as like culture music art so on and so forth uh that only seems that way because it's coming out nowadays because the thing is everything we're listening to now that's new it's based off of decades and decades and decades of some kind of of cultural appropriation in some direction every single rock band you listen to you know it has has roots going far back enough to stuff like the blues yeah and i mean are we going to discount the beatles and the rolling stones for being enamored of music that originated with African Americans in the South. I mean, it just how far back do you go and how how do you police this? I mean, like do you I've I've seen the example given uh across the internet of like, oh, well should should we uh tell Chinese people not to play classical music because it originated in Europe? I mean, just it it seems like a silly example, but the lengths to which some of the counterexamples go, it just seems logical to pop up with stuff like this and be like, okay, what, why are we arguing about this? Are we really that genuinely concerned, that genuinely outraged? Why are we so pissed off about this? It's music. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we, we could police it so far back as to say, um, you know, we should probably... Uh, step on the artistic hopes and dreams of anybody who is making electronic music because of a lot of the European history that uh, that that those uh, that that genre has. I mean, you know, take away the music making tools of anybody who uh, came after Kraftwerk, you know, <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> you know, or something like that. I mean, you can get that ridiculous with it. Uh, and, and the thing is, it just kind of seems like a bit of an eye for an eye thing to me, because, you know, once you sort of step on somebody's creativity and say, oh, well, no, actually that creativity comes from somewhere else. You know, the thing is somebody can come to that person and say, well, no, actually your creativity comes from me. And then someone can step to that person. I mean, you know, while Iggy Azalea can most certainly, you know, uh, uh, you know, have someone step to her and say, hey, you know, you're really just kind of appropriating hip hop right now. I mean, 
shit. I'm, I'm sure that there are probably hundreds of jazz musicians who would have loved to have had that opportunity mm-hmm. when it came to stepping to rappers and being like, hey, listen, you're you're <laughs> sampling my music right now, yep. and I don't like the way that fucking sounds, nope. and I don't like the things you're saying, I don't like the things you're doing over it, when, you know, honestly, uh, you know, people might sort of just kind of paint hip-hop, and, 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 and I think it's a good thing that culturally we've come to accept it as an art form, yep. you know, but uh, if, if we were to take it back a ways when people didn't understand it as such, you know, uh, you can't say that those jazz musicians whose music had been sampled, uh, you know, and they weren't just simply viewing hip hop as black culture and, you know, and and a reflection of such, um, you know, they saw it as their culture, their culture as jazz musicians being stolen. And you can't say that their feelings weren't legitimate. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm much more inclined to look into the world of the artists themselves and see how they feel about it than I am just like random people on Twitter. And I think that's much more fascinating too, because you get collaborations, you get mutual respect and you get beefs between people and you get people calling each other out. And it's to me, that's fine because it's people who are within the craft who are feeling one way or another. And it's not to say that fans shouldn't, have opinions but to me it just that's a lot more interesting and it makes a lot more sense no i i get what you're saying i mean uh, unfortunately uh well i mean fortunately in a way it's it's been cool that social media has kind of democratized opinions in 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 such a way um you know it's it's allowed us to be in a position where um situations like what had occurred with Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and uh, Eric Garner you know had not been swept under the rug yeah. as most likely they would have prior to the Twitter age mm-hmm. uh, however uh also it seems as if music fans and and I guess I'm sort of a part of this in 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 a way uh have more of a say as to what should go on in music than the actual musicians you know because personally if anybody's going to have an opinion on sort of um cultural appropriation in hip hop music you know I'd rather listen to an artist sort of say that if that's how they really feel if that's what they really believe mm-hmm. um you know as much as I do disagree with him uh, on some points you know I'd rather listen to a uh, lord jamar uh uh, who has done many a Vlad TV interview of a uh, brand Nubian who's sort of well known for his uh, very controversial opinions, uh, mostly, you know, off of that YouTube channel. You know, I'd rather listen to him sort of say his piece, not only because, um, you know, I know he's going to state it in a, in a way where he's uh, uh, kind of got experience because he's an artist, but also because he has a deep history with the genre. Yep. And <laughs> it's funny that, like, the easiest, I mean, <laughs> The common uh, trope is to say, well, I mean, if you don't like this, don't listen to it. I mean, that could work, too, if enough people just don't like Iggy Azalea and just don't pay for her music. But we're also living in a time where paying for music is a much more nebulous concept. So by the same token, yes, by the same token, like social media, like allows that to happen. Hmm. But... So, like, it's become a way of policing and (laughs) in the midst of really a devalued dollar in terms of music. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, paying for music, it's just become so nebulous. I mean, I'm looking at... 
I'm looking at the billboard charts and I just don't know what the fuck I'm looking at anymore. <laughs> like when I look at your record and it's number one, it's number two, it's number 10, it's number whatever. I mean, is it there because people bought it? Is it there because people streamed it? Mm-hmm. Is it there because they watched a few music videos on YouTube a bunch of fucking times? I really don't know anymore. What's the metric? You know? what's the metric, you know, and, and that's the thing. I mean, a while ago, Billboard had announced that, you know, we're going to be including, uh, you know, st- you know, streaming service streams, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing to sort of uh, tell you how popular an album is. Is an album number one? Uh, has it sold X amount of copies? Um, it, it just seems like it's all mixed into the point where it's just, uh, it just doesn't really mean much of anything anymore. You know, plus, I mean, a number one album just doesn't require the amount of copies that it used to, yep. you know, what it really requires these days is for kind of an open playing field, you know, for nothing else relevant to be getting released. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know, but with this new Adele album coming down the pipe, maybe we'll see another, maybe we'll see another, uh, record where it's just like for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. It's like number one, it's number one all freaking year. Who knows? Another, uh, 1989. Oh, that's, that's true as well. I mean, that went platinum pretty quick. Yes. Um, Drake's, Drake's new tape went platinum pretty quick. Yep. Um, I don't know how Kendrick is doing in terms of sales right now. Well, they should be doing pretty well. But, uh, but yeah, that's it. I think we'll leave it at that. I want to, uh, thank you, Matt, again, for coming on to this show, having this discussion with me about music writing, but also just, uh, you know, we, we, we really digressed and talked about just kind of little music industry shit in general. That's quite all right. It was a lot of fun. I will leave a link down in the description box where you can check out Matt's website. He should be putting up reviews, new reviews by the time you, you hear this, you hear this podcast. What's, what's sort of your, uh, your schedule? When can people find new stuff uploaded to the site? Um, well, it was, uh, like once a week, then it became once every two weeks it's been oscillating back and forth, but there will definitely be a new one up by the time this podcast airs. Okay. And it seems that, you know, you're always pretty, uh, engaged on Twitter as well. If anybody wants to ask you a question or, uh, annoy you or uh, yell at you for whatever reason. That's true. I will have a snappy response in the holster. All right. We'll have uh, his Twitter down in the description box as well and his Facebook, and you just kind of check out his whole deal. Again, Matthew Wendis, thanks for coming on. You're very welcome, Anthony. 